Hello, welcome to episode one of the Clinical Care Options podcast series, A Bold Panoramic Grasp of Tardive Dyskinesia. I'm Dr. Greg Mattingly, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the Washington University School of Medicine and President of the Midwest Research Group in St. Louis, Missouri. With me here today to discuss the importance of screening for tardive dyskinesia is Dr. Jonathan Meyer, Voluntary Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego, and Psychopharmacology Consultant for the Balboa Naval Medical Center First Episode Psychosis Program and the State of Nevada Project ECHO First Episode Psychosis Program. Dr. Meyer, let's jump into this discussion. So let's talk a little bit about who do you screen for tardive dyskinesia? Who do you think about? Who do you screen? How big do you cast your net when it comes to looking for tardive dyskinesia? Realistically, Greg, anyone who's on anything which is approved as an antipsychotic, at least through 2022, needs to be screened regularly for tardive dyskinesia. Sometimes people say, well, the risk is lower for low-dose use. I don't know if that's actually true. For second generations versus first generations, that is true. It doesn't matter what the indication is. doesn't matter what the dosage is. Everybody on an atypical has to be screened. And, and we'll get into a little bit about how often we do that. But I think the bottom line is this is the standard of care. In the U.S., really, the only non-antipsychotic associated with tardive dyskinesia is the GI motility drug metoclopramide. I don't see a lot of those people, but if you had somebody on metoclopramide, they would also deserve to be screened. You know, and I, I think that's an important point. And for me, it's as simple as you'll never see a progress note that I write that doesn't include if somebody's suicidal. The same thing if somebody's on a dopamine modulating medicine. You'll never see a progress note where I don't write, does somebody have extracranial side effects? Do they have tardive dyskinesia? So I just think a routine part of screening for anybody that's on these dopamine modulating medicines. Well, let me ask you, and you kind of touch on it. How often? Do we do it every visit? Do we do it every six months? Do we do it once a year? How often do we screen? And you know, how do we go about that? Well, I'm going to break this up into formal screening and informal screening. Formal screening per the most recent update of the APA guidelines for schizophrenia treatment, say, at the bare minimum, once a year. Once a year with a formal instrument, most of us use the AIM, some people use the discus, but a structured screening once a year. As people have more risk factors, you should increase the frequency of screening perhaps to every six months. So what's a risk factor? Well, the two big ones are number one, older age, so somebody 60 and above, and number two, use of a first-generation antipsychotic. In every meta-analysis, those appear as the biggest and most robust risk factors, and these types of people deserve screening every six months. Now, what about informal screening? And I think you sort of alluded to that just now. Every time you see a human being visually, you're screening them for a lot of things. It doesn't mean you did a formal AIMS or DISCUS, but you're talking to somebody face-to-face, -face, whether it's in the office or via tele, you just document what you see. If you didn't see anything, then you just note it. I did not see any abnormal movements in whatever body parts you could see <laughs> if it's through tele. But this gives you an opportunity to say, look, I saw this person every one or two months, and during that time, this is what I saw. And guess what? You see a lot just by looking at people informally. If you're in the office, you can see them walk from the waiting area. 
Two, where are you going to do the interview? If you're seeing them via tele, you'll get what you get and just document what you see. Yeah, I think 100%. And you just touched on my next question. You know, in the clinic, we start our screening from the day, the moment I go get somebody from the waiting room. I'm watching their gait. I'm watching their movement. I'm watching the way they hold themselves, their body posture, looking for any type of extramural side effect, including tardive dyskinesia. How do we do this during telehealth? It's a whole different virtual world we're in these days. Yeah, it's a different virtual world, but let's face it, everyone's now an expert. You've been doing this for two and a half years. Those those of you out in podcast land, you're all experts. I think particularly when we're doing something which is visual, the requirements are you have to have visual contact for one thing. I'm not really good at screening for movement disorders over the phone. I can ask people if they've noticed something, but that's about as much as I can do. You want to have a good visual platform and you want to have a stable platform. Yes, I can do an interview with somebody holding the phone, and maybe that's fine for certain purposes, but not for this. If you're working with somebody who may have difficulties, try to find a caregiver or somebody who can help them out, either to hold the phone or put it on a stand. Even better, of course, is if they have a laptop or a desktop computer on a stable surface. This allows you to get a good look at whatever you can see And I think the point being is that you can see quite a lot, even with tele. And there's two concepts here. One of them is that while many of us sometimes think of tardive dyskinesia as a problem that exists mostly above the neck, there are certainly a large group of people with tardive dyskinesia who have no symptoms in the head and neck. And it's just not sufficient to only look at that part of the body. So the second one is you can see a lot more than the head and neck. You just have the person move their chair back from the screen. And I think this allows you to do a very good structured assessment. There will be limitations. And I think it's always important as part of your documentation to say this assessment was done via tele. If there were limitations because of bandwidth, because of lighting, you do the best you can. And I think maybe the take home message is you still have to do it. And if you pick up something and you're really unsure because of the quality of the telehealth connection, that's the time when you may say, look, I need to bring you into the office to do a better examination. Often that is not necessary, but in those instances where you're really trying to decide between two opposite courses of treatment, as we've talked about in many of these sessions, podcasts, and lectures, what I use to make Parkinsonism better will make tardive dyskinesia worse, typically, like an anticholinergic. And if you're just not sure, that's a reason to bring the person in the office just so you know exactly what you're treating. You know, I just had the experience. I was talking to a group of nurse practitioners that work in a lot of long-term care facilities, and they've seen quite a bit of tardive dyskinesia throughout the years. They've become a big fan of one of the screeners that I think it was our friend Dr. Karoff came up with, which is kind of the, the visual image of the body. I call it the blue man screener, where it just looks at different body parts and it has the patient and or their caregivers say, do we notice anything? Do we notice anything in the tongues, the lips? Do we notice anything in the eyes? Do we notice anything in the fingers? And I love having that screener before I see my patient. So if their care worker has done it, if their family member has done it, if the patient's taken time just to reflect on, have I noticed anything in these body parts? I've used that quite a bit during televisits. And I think that that's a great point. Patients sometimes themselves, especially those who may have more severe mental illnesses, may be somewhat unaware of the severity or frequency of abnormal movements. Not all. And you should always ask them what they've noticed or if they've noticed how other people react to them. But sometimes they're just not aware. 
And if you have third-party individuals, they're often your best eyes about what's been going on. And the other thing is sometimes these at movement disorders fluctuate in severity. And maybe you're seeing somebody on a good day or maybe you're seeing them on a bad day because you're stressing them out because we're so mean when we see people via telly. Doesn't matter, but at least you have someone else who can say, yeah, this is better or worse than what they usually are, or you're not seeing it now, but we've seen this other thing. And that can be really, really helpful. I think the point being is you don't necessarily rule everything out on the basis of one examination, especially if a caregiver or third party says, you know, we've seen this thing. If I don't see it right then, you know what I'll tell them? Why don't we have another appointment in a month and maybe I'll get a better look at it at that time? Yeah. And, I, and we probably all had the experience of getting a call from a family member saying, you know, what's happened with mom? What's happened with dad? And they've noticed it even maybe more than the patient has noticed it. So I think that outside informant is really important. How would you help the audience to understand the yeah, others? Lots of different ticks and tremors and twitches that people can have. What are we looking for with tardive dyskinesia and how do we separate it out from the, the other movement disorders that can happen? So I'll make a comment about ticks, and I'll ask you the question as a child psychiatrist, what proportion of human beings have nuanced tick problems after the age of 18? Is it zero? It's, it's pretty low. It's not zero, but yeah, it's pretty low. You're right. Yeah, and I think this is really a great take-home point. If you're seeing people with tick-like behavior who did not have it as a child, this is not a primary tick disorder. This is a manifestation of something else. And in this case, it's going to be tardive dyskinesia. And I think also we don't see some of these tick-like behaviors in isolation. They'll be part and parcel of other signs and symptoms of tardive dyskinesia. So yes, they may have a lot of eye blinking or other movements which are tick-like, but you'll see other things. You may see the other irregular jaw or tongue movements, which are the classic oral buccal lingual dyskinesia. You may see truncal problems, writhing, aspects of dystonia as well. I think the harder part for some people are the extremity movements. Parkinsonism is maybe the one thing as far as an extremity movement that people might sometimes confuse with TD, especially if they haven't seen a lot of extremity movements with TD. So Parkinsonism has this classic resting rhythmic tremor. I think the rhythmicity is really the key to it. It's rhythmic. It's usually three to six hertz, three to six times per second, fairly coarse, and it'll be present at rest, but it's rhythmic. People with tardive dyskinesia have things which are not regular. They are not rhythmic. And you can see it sometimes in the fingers. We call that piano playing, where you see the fingers look extended like they're blinking the keys with their fingers extended of an imaginary piano. And guess what? You can also see that in their toes. And that's why you like to screen people at least once with their shoes and socks off. You can ask them about it, but they may deny it. They may be unaware, but you may see it in both. And I think the idea is that Parkinsonism is a rhythmic tremor. What you get from lithium or valproate is also a rhythmic tremor. Now, that's more of a postural tremor. It's a higher frequency, but they are rhythmic. And that often is the giveaway that this is not tardive dyskinesia. So let me see if I've got it. So a tremor is going to be rhythmic. It's going to have a consistent frequency. A dyskinesia is going to be dysrhythmic and not have a consistent frequency. Exactly right. Exactly right. And Part of what we're doing when we do these structured assessments is often just looking at people at rest. You know, part of the aims is you have somebody 
sit in the chair and maybe rest their forearms on their legs with their hands hanging between their knees. You just want to see what they look like kind of in their natural, unsuspended state, so to speak, to get a sense, is this something rhythmic? Is this something which is only present on intention or is it irregular? And that often is a big giveaway. That being said, could you have Parkinsonism and TD at the same time? It does happen. If it does happen, it's more likely to be in older individuals who are at risk for both. And that's maybe a topic for another discussion. Though it doesn't mean that you can have one or the other. You can have both, but most people typically have one or the other. And how about, Jonathan, before we move on from this topic, I know sometimes I've seen you and other people, and I've been taught to do this, to do these kind of what we call activation kind of parameters. You can call them activation. You can almost call them, you know, just getting people distracted. And sometimes you'll see the tardive dyskinesia come out more. What's the importance of that? And how do you go about it? The importance of it is that any form of stress will make things worse. And also, there can be a certain element of voluntary suppression. People who are aware of their movements are often embarrassed. And we'll talk about the impact on quality of life. But Many people are embarrassed by their movements. They're aware of it. And they've developed habits or methods of kind of masking or trying to control their movements. By getting people to do different types of things, you can see now what's going on. So one great one is to have people do something with one hand, and while they're doing that, you look at the other hand. So what's a stressful thing for people? Even doing mental math, having them come up with a number of words with the letter T, it doesn't matter what the task is, but the idea is they're being distracted, and while they're being distracted, you can look at their other movements to get a better sense of what they are. And the point being is that when you do a structured assessment, you rate the most severe thing that you've seen even if if it's done during distraction. Because the idea is that other times in their life when they're not consciously trying to suppress, that is how bad the movements can be. Yep. I remember my first patient with tardive dyskinesia as a resident. I missed it at first because he held out his fingers and he held them rigid. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see any TD. And it wasn't until later when he stuck his hand in his pocket, I could see that his fingers were moving. And and then we, we went through a more thorough exam and I realized that he kind of suppressed it by holding his hands really rigid and I first missed the TD. Yeah, exactly. How about the role of, you know, we don't get to see patients at every visit. Quite often, Mm -hmm. it may be a primary care physician, a nurse practitioner who's rounding. What's the role of the, you know, the support staff on the primary care side on screening for TD? I think the point being that if you're seeing somebody, let's say, as an outpatient provider who's your primary care provider, they're probably going to see you annually and they will do some form of a neurological exam. And guess what? Very often they're sticking a tongue depressor in your mouth anyhow. So they have the perfect opportunity to do, I would call a not entirely formal, but formal enough screening for all types of movement disorders. And and to my mind, now that I think the terminology of tardive dyskinesia is more out there, there's direct-to-consumer ads on TV, it would make sense that a primary care provider who sees somebody on a dopamine modulating agent would do some form of exam, even if it's just to say, I did not notice any abnormal movements when doing, let's say, my annual neuro exam. And certainly if they see something, then they should bring it to the patient's attention. Perhaps they may not feel comfortable treating it themselves, but it's certainly incumbent upon them if they do see something to refer them on for appropriate care. Yeah, I, I agree. So I think the role of all kind of all hands on deck. And if you see something that's you know worrisome, say something. If I see a tremor, I see a dyskinesia, I'm not sure what it is, you know, give me a holler, send me a note, make sure the family knows the next time they see the clinician, the psychiatrist, the nurse practitioner, 
that can bring it up. I mean, let's face it, we're all healthcare providers. If somebody came in for a first time visit for their major depression and you noticed a big, large, dark, dark mole in the middle of their forehead, it looked like melanoma, you'd probably say something about it. Yeah. Well, it goes back to tardive dyskinesia can live in the shadows. We've all seen mm-hmm. that. People are embarrassed, it gets missed. So I love this. You know, if you see something, just say something. You know, just yeah. kind of break down the barriers. Okay. Quality of life. One of the mistakes I think people make is hey, you know, it's just a tremor. How does tardive dyskinesia impact quality of life as far as maybe worsening depression, worsening stigma, isolation? What are some of the quality of life things we've learned about tardive dyskinesia? It impacts all of those. And I think you should think of it not just as a movement disorder, which it is, but it really is a social disorder, meaning it impacts social function greatly, especially in the more severe forms and the quality of life. And to the extent it impacts an individual, often maybe somewhat dependent on who they are. We do recognize that there are some people, for example, with schizophrenia, who may not be quite as aware. It doesn't mean they don't deserve treatment, but they may not be as aware. Patients with mood disorders, even those with what we'd call mild, and there's debate about how you define that, but we'd say lesser forms of TD, but still, they could never function and do their job because they have a persistent abnormal movement. I mean, think of all of you listening to this podcast. Could you do your job if you had abnormal mouth or tongue movement? It would be impossible. No matter how subtle they are, people are going to look at you and they're going to see that. So I think the most important part is you don't write people off based upon the extent of their complaint about the movements, but try to delve into, do they have functional impairment? Go through the various things. Does it impair your eating? Does it impair your coordination? Other aspects. And do other people notice? And you'd be surprised how many people who you thought were really ill and weren't aware say, oh yeah, now they may minimize it. And perhaps just just a defense mechanism because it has been very difficult and they've had it for so long. But don't think that people are unaware simply because of their diagnosis. And and I want to add a third group of people to involve in this discussion about quality of life. It's those who care about the patient. I remember a very touching story that a good friend of mine presented about a young lady who had schizophrenia. He finally got her stable, but she did have TD. She had TD coming into treatment, and it didn't get any better. And the prior clinicians had really minimized the impact because the patient herself did not complain. But the family said, you know, we would like to take her from the group home out to dinner. We'd like to take her to family activities. We'd like to take her to church. But her movements are so severe that people look and stare And it's really hard. We want to reintegrate her back in the family, but this is a barrier. And he treated her TD. It improved. You know, we don't cure TD, but it lessened her symptom severity. And the family was so thankful about what they had, what he had done for their daughter. They they were just really touched. Yeah. Jonathan, that reminds me, one of my recent patients, a woman with bipolar who had pretty significant TD. She was chewing on the inside of her lip and it was obvious to everyone. Um, Her daughter got married this past summer. Wow. And she talked about the impact of having her TD under better control so she could be there with the family, be there in the pictures, and not have to be self-conscious while she was doing it. Okay, how about the more severe TD? You know, maybe we don't see it quite as often as we used to years ago, but still, some TD can be pretty severe when you look at some of the people that show up in some of the more complex movement issues. Does it ever affect things like driving, self-care? How about swallowing? Where does TD, when it gets really bad, what do we watch for? It's certainly in the more severe forms, 
could affect every aspect of motor function. I, I, to be honest, I don't think I've had an outpatient with TD so severe where I felt the need to restrict their driving. Uh, they may have other reasons why they don't drive. Could that certainly be a possibility? I would say yes, but rarely, very rarely. You'd have to have severe, usually dystonic elements and other things which affect maybe your coordination and reaction time. But absolutely. Now, if you have severe TD and it's oral buccal lingual, you just talked about a woman who's chewing a hole in her cheek. Well, it may affect your chewing. It may affect your swallowing. There are sometimes people who have respiratory dyskinesia, where it seems like they're always gasping, which makes it very hard for them to go out in public because it's audible. I remember seeing somebody with TD so severe in his laryngeal muscles, he could not speak. And he actually had to use a pad and paper to get his wife to communicate with him. I think the idea is you try to be systematic, much to your prior documentation of just going from head to toe and trying to see what aspects of function, both physically and maybe socially and emotionally, are being inhibited by these movements so that as people get better, you can have a sense of, have we done as much as we can? And certainly, if you're using VMAT inhibitors, which require more titration, should we continue to titrate this medication to get the most benefit for the movements themselves and for all the functional consequences that result from them? Okay, so let me see if I can bring home the tips and tricks that we've kind of learned from today. Number one, anybody on a dopamine modulating medicine, let's make sure we're routinely documenting that we've screened either informally or maybe at least once a year formally. Um, number two, separating dyskinesias, tardive dyskinesia versus tremors. If it's rhythmic in frequency, likely to be a tremor. If it's dysrhythmic, then we start thinking about a dyskinetic movement, so tardive dyskinesia. And I like your take home. Make sure we screen all body parts because, you know, I've missed it where you don't see it up in the tongues and lips, but you look below and all of a sudden you see the hands, you see the middle of the body, and there's a lot going on there that maybe you missed. I think tip number three was even milder cases can have impairment, especially when it comes to social stigma and worsening of mood and emotion, especially in our mood disorder and anxiety patients. And then probably the next tip would just be if it's there, treat it, treat it so it doesn't progress and gradually become worse over time. Anything else you'd add, Jonathan? Really, I think that gives a, the, the, the nice summary. It's an illness that deserves treatment. You have to find a good reason why you say, I'm going to deprive this person of care just on the basis of their diagnosis or lack of awareness. I don't think that's right. And I think everyone deserves treatment. So at this point, I think our time is up, everyone. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you for that conversation, Dr. Meyer. And thank you to everyone for listening. We hope you found this discussion informative. We hope it provides a little bit of hope and insight for your patients and your clinical practice. And for more information on this series, please visit the show notes. Thank you all.